Welcome back, all you Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 23. This week, we're going to be covering chapter 3 of the book of Job. That's where we're going to pick up, um, and we're going to continue through chapter 31. In chapter 3 through 31, like we've talked about before, are the dialogues from Job's three friends. Each friend delivers their speech. Job responds to them each. And the common theme of all the discussion is the conclusion from Job's friends that Job's suffering was because of his sin on his part. The reasoning was that all suffering is punishment for sin. Job is suffering, therefore Job is a sinner. This was their logic, and it's the logic of what we call retribution. And we see that through all these speeches. However, before any of the speeches begin, Job has the first words, and this is what chapter 3 is all about. Chapter 3 is likely to be the most depressing chapter in all the Bible, because he opens up the chapter saying that he wished he had never been born, his anguish intensifies, and he says they wished that he could have died at birth, it would have saved him from all this misery. Since those two options were obviously impossible, Job finally longed for death, and he asked the question at the end of the chapter, why is it that those who wish for death more than anything else are unable to enjoy its sweet release? Job believes that death is going to solve his problem, and many put in this situation would likely think the very same thing. But death is not the answer, nor is the decision of death under Job's control. As you read through chapters 4 and 5, one of Job's friends named Eliphaz responds to Job's words, and he is the first one. The first thing that he does is rebuke Job for his lack of composure, especially because he, Job, had uh, comforted others in similar life situations. But Eliphaz gets right to the heart of what he believes is the problem. Job must have sinned in his life. He continues and says that sinners suffer because they sin. All the empirical evidence is against you, Job. To say otherwise is to ascribe injustice to the Lord. Well, Eliphaz takes the step further in a personal category and says that he knows others who started out well and end up bad or end up in a horrible situation because of their sin. The only solution, therefore, was to turn to the Lord. The Lord was gracious enough in sending this, quote, wake-up call into the life of Job, and he needed to respond accordingly. If Job would make things right, then blessings would come back to him. Did you catch that? There it is again, the idea of retribution, and that somehow God will always act in this fashion. Well, it's obvious that Job is still defending himself and doesn't believe that Eliphaz is right in his, um, in his assessment. Chapter 6 and 7, Job responds to Eliphaz, admitting that he might have been a little rash in his initial complaints, but his suffering was still very, very heavy. What Job really wanted is an early death, because then he would be prevented from the possibility of denying God through this process of suffering. So Job wanted the easy way out, and Job continues addressing the disappointments in his friends. He called them riverbeds. <laughs> Interestingly enough, riverbeds are filled with rushing water in the rainy season, but in the dry season is when the water is needed most. It cannot be found. And so, like in like manner, are Job's friends. When they're needed, they cannot be found. He asserted that they have acted deceitfully, pretending to help, but in actuality offering no hope at all. And so Job challenges his friends to note his sincerity. If they were to point out sin in his life, he would be the first one to admit it. And Job's lack of conviction of sin led him to the conclusion that his suffering has to be explained in some other way. So Job continues down the path of more complaining in chapter 7 that eventually leads to a prayer to God. Why was God picking on him, so to speak? Why was he being singled out? God surely has other important matters to deal with, so why should he be the object of so much attention? Don't miss the nugget of truth in Job's reactions here. Throughout his sufferings, Job did not turn away from God. Often people who do this 
Um, Often people do this when under intense suffering, but Job does not. As odd as this sounds, Job kept talking to God in the middle of his suffering, even though God did not respond to him, and even though he had no idea what was going on. But I think it's, it's what kept him sane and what enabled him to get through his suffering. It's when people abandon God in their suffering that they get into serious trouble spiritually. So there's a good lesson for us there in chapter number 7. As you move into chapter 8, we're introduced to a new friend of Job, and his name is Bildad. And Bildad agrees with Eliphaz that God was paying Job back for some sin, and he believed that if Job confessed, then God would show mercy. But Bildad built his conclusions on a slightly different foundation, arguing from the evidence of past generations arguing from history, um, you know, from history, we might say. All human experience is common, and all human perspective is limited. Therefore, a person must draw on the accumulated wisdom from the past, is what he's saying. And the lack to learn from it will create problems. And we often say it like this, if we don't learn from the past, we're doomed to repeat it. So Bildad assumed that Job had abandoned God, and there's a lesson here in Bildad's speech for us, Um, For those who would be counselors among us, he heard Job's word with his ears, but his heart heard nothing. And people with problems get little help from Bildad, who refused to reevaluate their theories in light of new evidence. They just reaffirm their traditional view. We must always be open to new insights and the possibility that not only we ourselves could be wrong, but those we follow might have interpreted the facts incorrectly. And the more I think about it, the more Job's friends would be a case study in the failure of interpretation. In chapters 9 and 10, Job responds to Bildad. And so Job concluded that God was unjust because he cut off both the guilty and the guiltless. God's actions, Job says, are arbitrary. God was unfair, and therefore it was useless for him to try to prove himself upright since God seemed determined to punish him no matter what. Job's concept of God was becoming fuzzy because God did not seem to him to be acting in ways that were consistent with Job's limited understanding of him. You know, we have the same problem. We need to get our concept of God from Scripture that gives us the fullest, most balanced view of God possible for us in the present, for us now. As a side note, you'll find that Job uses legal terms and metaphors in the sections that deal with his disputes with God. Job was a judge, we're told, according to chapter 29, verse 7, and he wanted justice from God. Therefore, the frequent use of legal terminology is used in his dialogues. And Job continues his dispute with God here in chapter 10. And this chapter is another prayer. It's a cry out to God for answers. One author pointed out a remarkable thing about Job's mind. In none of his petitions does he make the obvious request for his sickness to be cured, as if everything will be all right when he is well again. That would not answer the question, which is more urgent than every other concern, as to why he's suffering. See, Job didn't want to just solve the problem, fix the problem, let's stop the suffering. He wanted to know why. He's asking that larger, more philosophical question of why. As we move into chapter 11, we're introduced to yet another friend, a third friend, and his name is Zophar. He takes the most aggressive stance against Job, and he attempts shock treatment to get through to Job. And quite simply, he noted four things that bothered him about Job. He was too talkative. (laughs) He was boastful. He was self-righteous, and he was ignorant. And Zophar seems to believe that Job deserved worse punishment than that which God had already given him. While Eliphaz and Bildad praised God's justice, Zophar praised God's wisdom. And ironically, Zophar couldn't understand God's wisdom either. Repentance, prayer, and reformation were the keys to Job being restored, said Zophar, whereas Eliphaz's authority was to personal experience and Bildad's was to tradition, Zophar seems to have been intuition. It appears that Zophar held to what he believed 
about divine retribution simply because it seemed right to him. So he's kind of one that's going with his gut feeling. He offered no other reason for adopting this view than that it was self-evident, to him at least. His speech was more emotional than any of the ones given so far. And then in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Job responds to Zophar. So Job could not agree with his friend's conclusions, but neither could he explain why God was dealing with him as he was. In an ironic twist, Job takes the theories of his friends and turns them back on his friends. Their view that God always blesses the upright does not fit the facts. He first cited himself as an example. In the past, he had called on God and was upright, but now look what was happening. Second, he mentioned the case of the robbers who prospered and are well protected in this life. Third, he notes that even animals know that calamities come from God's hands. Job tells Zophar that he needs to take a lesson from the animals, and an obvious remark about how Zophar had called him as ignorant as a wild donkey. So there is a little bit of name-calling here in chapter 11. In short, history shows us, or shows that all the world's leading Authorities have not enjoyed God's blessings as they should have if his friend's major premise was correct. And since Job's friends could not solve his problems, in chapter 13, he asked God to speak with him. As he prepares to present his case before God, he asked his three friends to be silent and to listen. It seems that Job expected God to end his life on this spot for what he was about to say. But it didn't matter because he wanted answers more than life itself. And so he asked God question after question, but no response comes from God. To Job, it seems that God had put him in the middle of an impossible situation of holding him accountable for misdeeds that he refused to disclose to him. This causes Job to sink into deep despair, which is what chapter 14 is all about. Despair that he might never get an answer from God or that God would never intervene. All he could look forward to with hope and confidence was death. But beginning in chapter 15, Job's three friends make their second appeal. So I guess the first appeal wasn't enough. So they begin a second time. Their theology of retribution here does not change. However, it seems their attitudes do as they shift from calling him to repent to calling to explaining to him about the fate of the wicked. So in one way, they're actually saying he's a wicked person. Their first speech were, were more intellectual, you might say, pushing Job to think logically. But now the speeches are much more emotional, trying to convince Job's conscience. So chapter 15 brings Eliphaz back into the picture. In his first speech, Eliphaz spoke to Job politely, but now he abandons such courtesy and opens, excuse me, and openly and sharply attacks Job with one dagger after another. He accuses Job of speaking irreverently and being self-righteous. Eliphaz reminds Job that God will destroy the wicked person, and he continued to make a long list of what God will do to the wicked. Clearly, here he is lumping Job in with the wicked. Basically, he's telling Job that you reap what you sow, but he is just doing it in a lot of different ways. Chapter 16 and 17 is Job's response to Eliphaz. First, Job blames his friends for being sorry comforters, and I probably would do the same thing. But in Job's view, his friends did not cause their greatest discomfort. God had done that. Job's underlying assumption is that God is angry with him because of some unknown sin, and he was being punished for that unknown sin. Job longed for someone to plead with God on his behalf since God was apparently ignoring his cries. And so Job's friends were not pleading his case as true friends should have done. And so Job feels that God had chosen to make an example of him, perhaps as a lesson to those who are righteous. His friends have obviously learned nothing uh, nothing, um, from this experience. They have... um, 
they are the epitome of stubbornness, we would say. All that remains for Job is to go to the grave without any answers. He's brought to a place where he seemed to be losing all hope. Now, chapter 18 brings Bildad back into the conversation. There is little different from Bildad's first speech. This is the second one, except his second one is harsher than the first one. So Bildad launches into a lengthy discourse on the fate of the wicked, especially uh, or specifically how the wicked will end up in a trap. And often when counseling suffering people, it's more important to help them think about God and talk to Him. Rather than getting them to understand or adopt our theology, the last thing that people who are in a desperate situation or a suffering situation like this need is theology. They need to know that God is still there for them. And Job's friends were so bent on pushing their theology, they forgot to do the natural thing. Job's friends seemed to be giving up on him because um, he would not agree with their theological presuppositions. They failed to give him credit for his desire to come to terms with God. Chapter 19, Job responds to Bildad's second speech. And this speech is one of the more important ones, you might say, in the book. In chapter 19, Job reaches a new low and a new high. It seems as if this is the turning point. He reveals the extent of his rejection by his friends, his relatives, and his servants, but he also came to a new confidence in God. It's here in the darkest of all places where everything is pitch black that Job's faith starts to shine. Verses 23 through 27 are probably some of the better known verses of the book. Job's faith that he will one day be vindicated bursts forth. He calls out for a redeemer to advocate for him. Now, while we would jump on this and say, well, that's Jesus, we need to be careful. A redeemer in the Old Testament sense was a person who provided legal, provided protection or legal preservation for a close relative who could not do so for themselves. And in this context, to vindicate or to attest to a person's righteousness is what the term is expressing. Job was confident that his redeemer, whomever he may have in, have had in mind, would take up his cause and vindicate him, probably after Job died. Now, this person would have the last word. And by the way, read verses 27, 26, and 27 carefully and note that this is an important Old Testament text about resurrection after death. Job affirmed that he would survive death and not just in some disembodied form. He would see God and with literal physical eyes would see him. Though this is no thorough presentation of the doctrine of the bodily resurrection as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, but this does show Job's confidence in God's integrity as a vindicator. He may not fully understand, but he trusts. A breakthrough seems to have come now in the life of Job. Now, chapter 20 is Zophar's second speech. Zophar continued with the theme that the fate of the wicked, that Bildad and Eliphaz had been emphasizing. Zophar focuses on a particular aspect of the wicked, namely that they will lose their wealth. They will only prosper for a short time. Zophar's speech is the worst of all the speeches thus far. Really, he had nothing new to say. He just said it more emotionally. Zophar was correct in saying that, that God judges sins, but he was wrong in saying that God's judgment always takes place in our lifetime. He was also inaccurate in saying that Job was this person because, well, we know the end of Job's story. <laughs> Chapter 21, Job replies to Zophar's second speech. Job's friends have been selective in their observations regarding wicked people. They had pointed out only the cases in which God judged them on earth. Job now presented the other side of the story. There were many wicked who never experienced God's judgment before they died. 
his words contrast especially with what Zophar had just said in in, uh, chapter 20. Job claimed that the wicked die for the same reason as the righteous die. They are sinners. They do not inevitably die early because they are wicked sinners. And this speech in chapter 21 explains Job's position that certainly squares with reality better than his friends. Frequently, the wicked do prosper throughout their lives. God does not always cut off evil people prematurely. For example, even though Manasseh was Judah's worst king, he reigned the longest and died a natural death. Even though Mussolini and Hitler died violent deaths, Lenin and Stalin died in their own beds as old men. Furthermore, we are clearly told in the New Testament that all that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that. And Job accused his friends of being wrong. Basically, he lowered the axe. You guys are wrong. At the end of the second cycle of speeches, the advantage in the debate was obviously with Job. His arguments made more sense than those of his three friends. Now, chapter 22 begins the third cycle of speeches. The first cycle of speeches, the accusation was, Job, you are a sinner and you need to repent. The second cycle of speeches says, Job, you are wicked and God is punishing you. Now, the third cycle of speeches, Job, you have committed these specific sins. So even though they don't know what the sin is that Job committed, they're going to list some specific sins as if they know the actual sin. Strange, I know. Chapter 22 is Eliphaz's third speech. Eliphaz says that Job had committed social sins, taking advantage of the poor, withholding needs from the hungry, neglecting widows and orphans, all of which show his disregard for God's laws. In chapters 23 and 24, Job replies back to Eliphaz, but he does not respond directly to Eliphaz. He gives a speech about not understanding God's system of justice. He could not understand why God did not always quickly judge sin. By the way, I'm thankful that God doesn't always quickly judge sin and shows us mercy time and time again. He lists lists three specific ones, taking another's land, stealing another's flock of sheep, and mistreating the weak. Those are three specific ones Job lists. Job could not see why God seemingly ignored these perpetrators yet afflicted him so severely. It seems that Job is reflecting on why God does not punish the wicked sooner. We know that the wicked are punished in death, but God does not choose to punish them sooner. Why? That was Job's question. And I think we've all asked this question at one time or another in our lifetimes. Maybe we will have, uh, maybe we will have some time to answer this question towards the end of our study of the book of Job. Well, chapter 25 is Bildad's third speech, and this speech is brief, meaning that Job's friends were running out of arguments, and Bildad simply emphasized the sinfulness and insignificance of all people in comparison to the greatness of God. Then in chapters 26 and 27, Job responds to Bildad. He rebukes Bildad's attitude and sarcastically charged him with the same weakness and inability that Bildad had ascribed to all men. Then Job begins to recite the words about the greatness of God. Clearly, clearly, Job's view of God was larger and better than any of his friends. Chapters 28 through 31 contain Job's concluding monologues uh, geared to his three friends kind of like a conclusion to their discussion. Chapter 28 is a wisdom hymn. The essence of this chapter is that wisdom does not lie hidden in the earth. It lies in the person of God. The key to obtaining wisdom is orienting oneself properly toward God. One of the more famous verses in Job is, God is the God who gives and who takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, if we were to summarize chapters 29 and 30, we would say that chapter 29 is about 
all that the Lord blessed and gave to Job. Then chapter 30 is about all the misery of God taking away those things from Job. And so Job concluded his defense with a statement of innocence in chapter 31. He challenges God to present his charges in writing. And the flow of chapter 31 goes from Job claiming his innocence in his personal life to his innocence towards his neighbor, and finally his innocence toward God. Now, when it was apparent that Job's three friends and Job himself had worn themselves out with fruitless dialogue, a young listener, up until now hidden from the reader's view, enters the discussion with a rather lengthy discourse from his own particular vantage point, and his name was Elihu. And we're going to talk about Elihu when we pick up with the speeches next week as we get into chapter 32. But there's one thing you need to understand as we close about Job's three friends. They all were thinking about this theology of retribution, kind of a cause-effect relationship, because this happens, then this happens. If you sin, then God punishes you. If you do wrong, then God punishes you. They have this cause and effect reaction, and they think they understand that that's the way that God should respond. But the conundrum here is that God is not responding that way. And we know the end of the book because many of us listening to this podcast have read the book. We know that God vindicates Job at the end. But right now, these three friends are pushing this theology on Job. And we find this a lot in the world today. We find that even a lot of Christians like to make bargains with God. If you'll do this, I'll do this. If you'll do this, I'll do this. But trying to understand how God works, trying to understand why he does what he does, sometimes, like Job is experiencing, can be fruitless. Just understanding that he is doing what's best for us, I think, gives us the most sense of peace. But next week, we'll pick up in chapter 32 with this younger fella. His name is Elihu, and we'll save more discussion about what he talks about for next week. All right, we're finished for this week. Email any questions to BibleReadingLBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.